All right, hey, what's up, FNBA Nation? This is Bill Brower, and in this episode, I had the honor and privilege to talk with Bob Falzerano, who is a captain on the Union Fire Department and the former president of Local 246. And Bob really opens up to us in this episode about some of the things he's been dealing with over the past couple months surrounding PTSD, depression, suicidal thoughts, and other mental health challenges. And the message in this episode is to understand that it's okay to not be okay. Bob opens up about a lot of uh, issues that he's had over the past couple months and over the course of his life and tells us about the time where he hit rock bottom and was contemplating even taking his own life. Um, So have a listen to the episode and if you're somebody that is struggling with something right now and you're in seek of some type of help or maybe you don't recognize that you might need help, please listen to Bob's story because it can definitely get you to that point where maybe you'll be ready to take the steps forward to get the help that you need. And the FMBA has a wealth of information and resources for our members and for our family members to utilize so that you can get the help that you need. All right, hey, what's up, FMBA Nation? This is Bill Brower, and we are live in the Surpro Studios here in Rawley, New Jersey. I've got the honor and privilege to be joined by none other than Bob Falzerano, former Local 246 president, retired captain of the Union Fire Department with 25 years of service. Uh, Bob, thanks for joining me today to talk about what's a, um, a very important topic, something that we've been uh, really pressing here at the state FMBA in terms of awareness. And uh, that is uh, mental health, PTSD, and uh, how we can recognize these things and what we can do if we're suffering from this kind of stuff. So, Bob, thanks for taking the time to uh, join me. Um, tell us a little bit about your, uh, your career in the fire service first. How did you get started uh, as a firefighter? And uh, how did you rise up through the ranks to uh, captain? Give us a little background about your uh, service history. So very luckily, I just had a good friend of mine uh, who, by the name of Dean Ferdinand, who you know. And Dean was a good friend of mine at the time. Uh, he was coming to take the test for Union Fire Department, and he actually called me up and said, hey, I'm going to take the test for Union Fire Department, and you're coming with me. Uh, actually had no idea about the job or about anything about being a firefighter. Uh, his brother was already on the job in Irvington, so... You know, I wasn't doing anything at the time. And I said, yeah, you know what? I'll take the test for the hell of it. It wasn't like I said, I want to be a fireman, you know, ever since I was a kid. Uh, but I, I just took the test. Uh, thankfully, he called me that day because if he didn't, I don't know where I would be today. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I rose up through the ranks. Um, in my 21st year, I got promoted to lieutenant. And in my 24th year, I made captain. Uh, it was it was a little difficult for me because I was never a book smart guy. I was I didn't go to college. I got out of high school and joined the military. So, and then I pretty much got on the fire department. So, um, you know, it was tough for me reading all those books. I had to really I had to highlight everything and make flashcards. And the first test I came out number eleven, and I was a little disappointed because I thought I worked really hard on it. But uh, that just inspired me to work even harder the next time around. So. The second test I took, I ended up coming out number three, and I got promoted to lieutenant. And then um, I came out number four in the captain's test and got made captain right on my 24th year. So it worked out perfectly. I did a year as a captain, and August 1st, uh, 2021 is my official date where I'll be off the books, but um, I'll be officially retired. 
Um, so you've had a, you've had a, a pretty long career, um, 25 years. You've probably been through a lot of different types of scenes, a lot of different types of incidents. Um, I know you have military experience and you served our country. Thanks for your service. Um, tell us a little bit about what has transpired over the past couple of months for you um, entering into your retirement. I know you recently uh, went through some things and um, you know we're very eager to hear your story and uh, possibly hope that this can help somebody one day. Yeah, that's the whole reason I'm here. You know, I'm not the kind of guy to keep anything in. You know, um, I don't mind sharing my story in the hopes that it can help somebody else. Uh, just like in a, I had the, the Captain Bushio physical save my life. And I, I went to convention the, um, the year after I had my surgery and I explained to everyone that I had a congenital birth defect that was found. in it was so rare. It was an anomaly that was found in one in 15,000 people. Um, and, you know, I told my story just because I thought maybe that someone out there would hear my story and be inspired to go get the physical themselves. And uh, I know the program's been a tremendous success. And Donna came to our firehouse and told her story, which inspired me to go get checked out. And once I got checked out and found out that I had this anomaly, I had to get open heart surgery. And uh, it was very shocking to me. But, um, you know, the anomaly that I had was my, basically my coronary artery was wedged in between my heart muscle and my pulmonary artery. So every time the heart and the pulmonary artery were pulsing, uh, squeezing blood, they were pinching on my coronary artery, which is in between there. So uh, they actually left it where it was and they bypassed around it. But it was actual, you know, it was one of those things where the doctor said you could have just dropped dead one day. I didn't have any symptoms or anything like that. I went for a physical and they caught it in the bushy up physical. So that's the reason why I'm here today. You know, uh, a couple months ago, I started having severe anxiety and panic attacks for the first time in my life. And I'm, I'm 51 years old. So I couldn't understand why is this happening to me now, you know, and uh, I want everyone to have the resources, make sure we can either put it out now or at the end to have Dr. Bizarro's phone number and uh, Kenny Burkett's phone number from, uh, they're both from Princeton House. Um, I had these resources in my phone, ironically, because I was the union president of Local 246, and I had sent people to Princeton House that had issues with mental health and drinking, et cetera. So uh, it was very fortunate that I had the resource in my phone because I don't know. Otherwise, I, I did call, uh, and he's okay with me talking about it. I spoke to the chief of the union fire department who was having his own issue with anxiety about a year ago, and we're very close friends, so uh, I was able to call him too. and tell him about what I was dealing with. And, uh, and he told me to, you know, go talk to Dr. B. So Dr. Bizarro is Dr. B. That's what, that's yep. what I call him. Yep. Um, but I want to make sure everyone has the resource in their phone, especially if you're, if you're on the uh, executive board, you need the number to, to help your people, but also you, you may never know, you, you may need it for yourself one day. You wouldn't ignore a stranger's call for help don't ignore your own. Constant exposure to chronic stress affects the lives of first responders and makes them particularly susceptible to post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and substance abuse. Seeking help before problems escalate is something you should not ignore for yourself or for your family. Princeton House's first responder treatment services are designed to meet your unique needs. Inpatient treatment is enhanced by the treatment team comprised of former law enforcement officers, emergency medical services personnel, and military veterans. 
and by specialized groups and programs just for first responders. If you find yourself in need of mental health services, please do not hesitate to reach out to Penn Medicine Princeton House Behavioral Health Team at 800-242-2550 or by visiting princetonhouse.org slash first responder. Under the direction of NJFMBA President Ed Donnelly, the NJFMBA created a peer assistance protocol to provide mental health and substance abuse services to the NJFMBA membership and their families. This protocol provides emergency access to mental health and substance abuse treatment services 24-7 by contacting any member of the peer assistance team. Peer coordinator Tyrone Smith can be reached at area code 973-573-9694. Director of Clinical Services Dr. Michael Bizarro can be reached at area code 732 771-7165. Peer Specialist Ken Berger can be reached at 908-346-1691. Dr. Julie Tropiano can be reached at 732-977-3819. The Critical Incident Stress Management Team is accessed through NJFMBA Team Coordinator Troy Powell at 973-868-05. Uh, but like I said, in about about May, beginning of May, I started having severe anxiety and panic attacks for the first time in my life. And um, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I went to see Dr. B. I got on some medication. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a lot longer story than that. It actually, I had to go to Princeton House for nine days. Um, but I ended up being diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Uh, and I want to touch on all three of those because they're, they're all very unique to my situation. Uh, but it's very important as first responders to understand uh, what I'm about to tell you because I was very naive when it came to PTSD. I heard about PTSD. I thought it was more for combat veterans coming home from combat. You know, I knew police officers and firefighters can get PTSD. But what I didn't know was that I always thought you would see a horrific event at work and you would get it that night or get it the next day. I didn't realize you can get it in retirement. You know, the P in PTSD stands for post. Obviously, pre is before, post is after. My career is over, you know, so I'm, I'm basically retired. I'm home recovering from knee surgery and, and I'm not going back to work. So I'm like, why is this happening to me now? The doctor said all the horrific things that you saw in your career, you never got a chance to process those when you were working because you had a job to do. You know, when I pulled a seven and a three-year-old out of a pool that just drowned and doing CPR on them and they didn't make it, I don't have time when that's happening to get emotional because I am in EMT in mode. Home. You know, I'm in the moment and I had I had a job to do. Right. Um, and that's just one. I'm not going to sit here and tell war stories. We all have we all have dozens, if not you know, hundreds of stories about horrific things that we've seen. And this goes for everyone, not just police officers, but firefighters, especially EMTs, paramedics, nurses, even dispatchers, yeah, because they're on the other end of the yeah. line when they hear these horrific calls. Sure. So what I learned about PTSD was the post part hit me after retirement. Okay. The T is for trauma. Now, trauma comes in two forms. It comes in physical and emotional trauma. Mm -hmm. And I had both. I had severe emotional trauma. Uh, when I was nine years old in, in 1979, I lost my father, my grandfather, and my dog all in one year. 
So anyone that's a dog owner knows, you know, that was my dog that I got when I was, yeah, my first uh, first birthday Mm -hmm. and died when I was nine years old. So I was still too young to even understand what death was at that time. But here I am losing three, three very important, uh, you know, two people and a pet in my life. So that was my, that was my emotional trauma. Uh, In addition to growing up, um, my mother was a single mom and, and I always felt like she favored my brother growing up. So that was another thing, a part of my emotional trauma that, that I had to work through. Um, but the, but the other thing that I didn't know is the physical trauma. Mm-hmm. Now, when we as EMTs or firefighters think of trauma, I think of a car accident where somebody gets ejected from the vehicle, the right? They have mm-hmm. internal injuries. They're bleeding internally. We have to take them to university hospital and they're right. going to a trauma center. That's what I think of as a trauma. But what I didn't understand was that it can be emotional trauma as well as physical trauma. Now I've had 12 surgeries in my life. Okay. I had five knee surgeries. I had ankle surgery. I had the open heart. I had my gallbladder out. I had a tonsillectomy. So these are all traumas mm-hmm. unbeknownst to me at the time, but these are all things that were brought out in therapy um, that, you know, I just never got the process. And it's a major surgery to get, to get open heart surgery. Sure. I mean, they literally take a, a saw and they cut your breastbone open and they spread you open and, you know, but at the time, I was just like, hey, you know what? I got this congenital birth defect. I got to get it fixed because of my age and what I do for a living. And I didn't think much about it. Um, all this stuff kind of hit me uh, in retirement. And and the S in PTSD is stress. Now, we all have stress in our lives, okay? And that's the one thing I said to the doctor. I don't understand, doc. I said, I've had stress my entire life, and I've always managed it. I said, why now? You know, and he explained to me, it made a lot of sense. He said, if you look at it this way, right, say your entire life, if you pour a beer into a glass too fast and it foams all the way up to the tippity top and stops mm-hmm. and it goes back down. He said your whole life it's been coming up to the top and going back down. He said for the first time in your life it spilled over the sides. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it never looked at it that way. But at the time, I was, I'm literally moving four times in seven months. You know, I sold, I sold my house in a day. So I moved out of my house into my friend's beach house, out of my friend's beach house into my sister-in-law's house. And the end of this month, I'm moving out of my sister-in-law's and into my new house. So uh, he gave me this list of the top six stressful events in life, of which five of the six I have. So death of a loved one, yes. Divorce, no. Moving, yes. Major illness or injury, yes. Job loss, yes. I'm officially, you know, retired and can't work my second job now and I have to think about getting another job. So I did essentially lose my part-time fire inspector job um, and retirement. So these are all, these are six, stress, lottery of stressful events. six major right. stressors in life. And I, ha- I had five out of the six. Right. Uh, more stresses of responder work or shift work, uh, working holidays, mandatory overtime, uh, poor sleeping and eating habits, excessive Check. alcohol consumption, right. relationship problems, and child care issues. Check. So, yeah. And and for our brothers in blue, um, this is a very sad fact. For 2017, 18, and 19, more police officers have died by suicide than were killed on the line of duty. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and I also want to share one last thing for you that um, the doctor shared with me. It said 84 men a week take their own life. 75% of all suicides are male. Men are less likely to get help. Speak out. Talking saves lives. So what I went through here was was basically a combination of medication and therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, the PTSD was just one part of it. Um, the anxiety, you know, 
uh, has pretty much gone away uh, with with the medication. Um, and a couple things that I did to help with my anxiety, my racing thoughts, where my wife taught me how to text myself. So when I was thinking about things, like especially for this book I want to write, I would text myself. I also was able to record my voice on my iPhone, which helped out a lot too. Um, so those are two things that helped me out. And, and, and believe it or not, um, meditation. A lot of people talk about meditation and the doctor recommended meditation is like, you know, you want to give it a try. I said, you know, doc, I'll try anything. Really. I honestly had never meditated before. And, um, I have an app called calm. That's the union accent of me, C-A-L-M. Uh, it's not a free app. It's $60, but don't be cheap Buy buy the app. You guys, it's like a, it literally helped me tremendously with anxiety. Um, you know, there's this woman called Tamara Levitt. She does a daily, um, you know, she does a daily story of meditation. It's very relaxing and soothing, but I didn't really get meditation until I explored the app a little bit further. One of the, uh, there's also something in there with seven days to overcoming anxiety. Mm -hmm. But then as I was scrolling through one day, I came across, you can even listen to Bob Ross, you know, the guy who does painting. If you want to go to sleep, he's awesome. (laughs) Uh, you know, put a happy little tree over here, you know, so. Uh, but, but anyway, I was scrolling through the app and I saw this guy named Jeff Warren and it said, teaching you how to meditate. I was like, all right, let me, let me listen to what this guy has to say. And, um, in the second episode, he talks about something called home base. And this is when I finally understood meditation. Home base could be anything you want it to be. He said, it could be the breath. It could be a sight. It could be a sound. It could be a touch. So for me, I just said, you know what? The breath seemed like the easiest thing to me. So I'll make it the breath, you know? Uh, but I really didn't get meditation until that point. I thought meditation was, you're always going to have these racing thoughts. They, they're never going to go away. Mm-hmm. But what meditation does is teaches you that it's okay to have these thoughts. It just teaches you how to pull yourself back from them. And even if you have these racing thoughts, you know, one every second, you know, for me, it was the breath. I would take a deep breath when I was, when my mind started to wander and then it would bring me back to the present moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I said, it could be anything. It could be a smell, a sight, a sound, a touch. Some people know, pinch their finger, whatever it is to bring them back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so meditation helped me a lot with the anxiety. Um, and the depression part, like I, I was just in denial. My father had depression. Like I told you, my father, I didn't tell too many people this, but my father had mental illness and committed suicide in 1979 when I was nine years old. Now, at the time, back then, you know, the technology didn't exist today with right. the therapies and the medication. So yeah. You know, I totally understand. He was only 29 years old when it happened. And, uh, you know, it actually, when I was in my darkest moment, may have saved my life. I'll, I'll touch, I'll get back on that in a few. Um, but my father has depression. And without going into other family members, I could just say four very close family members also have either anxiety or depression. Yeah. So I always just thought, hey, you know what? I guess I never got it. You know, but really I had it my whole life and I was just managing it. Uh, and it finally kind of reared its ugly head. So um, it, it is very hereditary, and it's something that if you have in your family, it's something to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean you're definitely going to get it, uh, but you know, if you're having issues with, I call it drowning your pain. Everybody has pain in life through some type of traumatic uh, experience, and they all drown their pain in different ways. You know, some people drink, some people do drugs, some people gamble, some people are violent. You know, some people are the funny guy in the room doctor always told me, keep an eye on the funniest guy in the room because that's how he numbs his pain by with, with humor. You know, a lot of guys come back from a horrific call and they joke about it in the firehouse. That's how we cope. Right. You know, um, it's not normal to see the things that we see and just brush them off. Mm-hmm. It's really impossible. 
You know, if you're a guy who can't sleep uh, or has nightmares, you may be thinking about that kind of stuff. And you know, you know what's interesting? You talk about trauma, right? So uh, you, you touched on it before a little bit that trauma doesn't necessarily have to be a mangled person or, you know, somebody who's got their fingers cut off, whatever the case may be. The sheer fact of going into somebody's home, right, and seeing the condition of this home sure. or, or, you know, the way that people's lifestyles are or the interaction between a mother and a child or a father and a mother or a wife and husband, whatever that is, Absolutely. any of that stuff. Falls Anything that scars traumatic. your brain is, is yeah. considered traumatic. And don't forget, COVID is a huge oh, one. Yeah. I mean, parents home with their kids, homeschooling. And, I, you know, r- right before I retired, I was the captain of Engine 3, and that's where we house our one and only ambulance, okay? During the height of COVID, that thing was going out all day, every day. And we all know this. We're all in it, you know? It was going out all day, every day on either confirmed COVID cases that were being transported or people with symptoms, right? And you all know, we're all firefighters, right? (laughs) These guys are supposed to wear their PPE and decontaminate the ambulance, but we know they all don't do that. And we're sharing sharing a firehouse. You know, we're eating together, we're watching TV together, we're sharing a bathroom, we're sharing a bedroom. So whether you know it or not, these traumatic things, they don't have to be things that you're, you're constantly thinking about. They could be in your subconscious. You know, your brain is an amazing thing. Basically, all a panic attack is and anxiety is an overload of your brain and your body's basically saying, I can't handle this right now. I was able to handle it a little while ago, but what's going on now? You know, it's your body's way of telling you something's not right. Back to the beer analogy. Yes. And you have to listen to your body, mm-hmm. you know, when your body's telling you, you know, something's not right. Um, but, but going back to what I talked about my father, I never mentioned that he committed suicide because I was embarrassed by it. I don't know why I was, but I was embarrassed. And, and now I don't care who knows, you know, because, um, the night that I got committed, okay, I, um, these are my exact words to my wife verbatim. You know, I said, look, I'm not trying to scare you, but I'm going to get up and I'm going to open the safe and I want you to hide my gun. Now I, I'm a legal gun owner and it's in a safe and I have to use my fingerprint to open it. Um, and at the time, my wife was just being my wife. You know, she was kind of nagging me and I was not, I was out of my mind at the time, Bill. I was not myself. And everyone knew it. My sister-in-law, my mother, my wife, they were all saying, you're not, something's wrong with you. You're not you. So I would never do it. I mean, it was the closest I ever came to hitting my wife in 23 years. I never put my hands on her. But I was so mad that she couldn't understand what I was going through. She can see that I'm going through some hell right now. And instead of being understanding and sympathetic, I felt like she was nagging me. So when I told the doctor about the gun, I said, I was just telling her that because I wanted her to understand the severity of this and really just to shut her up. But he says, no, you know, you had a suicidal intention. I'm like, no, doc. I said, I I really just wanted to shut her up. He's like, no. He's like, you were thinking about using that gun on yourself. And that's why you told her to hide it. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I really was thinking about it. And honestly, I thought about putting it to my chest. I thought about putting it under my chin. And it was literally for a millisecond, Bill. And I could never, ever do that, no matter how bad it got, because my father committed suicide. And because of what that was like for me growing up as a kid without a father, I could never put my kids through that, no matter how bad it got. So there was a negative thing that happened in my life that I turned into a positive situation. But I did think about it. Uh, I even had a doctor's appointment um, a couple days prior. And I was sitting in the parking lot waiting to merge out onto Route 206, and it was a lot of traffic. And there was a tractor trailer that was coming with a full load, and I was looking, and I was literally, for a millisecond, I didn't think about pulling out, but I said, man, if I pull out and this guy hit me, I'd be dead on impact. Mm-hmm. 
And the doctor's like, you were thinking about it. Whether you want to admit to it or whether you know it or not, I was thinking about it. And you know what? I'm, I'm not I'm not embarrassed or ashamed to say that right now because I was not in my right frame of mind. Yeah. And that's what people need to understand. You know, I'm 51 years old. I dealt with this my whole life. It just surfaced now. I realized I had a problem. I had the resources and I got help. And through medication and therapy, I'm, I'm in a much better place now. And I'm, I'm, you know, uh, I, I had to go to Princeton House. There's two Princeton houses. There's one. Well, first I got committed to Penn Medicine Hospital. Uh, and I was in Penn Medicine Hospital from there. I went to Princeton House in Princeton. There's also one in Florida that we send guys to. But I went to Princeton House in Princeton for nine days. That's a severe inpatient facility. It's almost like a rehab facility. Mm-hmm. There's people in there for all different types of mental illness and addiction. I spent nine days in there. And the reason I had to spend nine days in there is because the doctor said the medication takes seven days to take effect. So sure. you need to be Between here. Between now and then, you could have some more thoughts. Exactly. So he's like, we're not going to let you leave until you feel good. Mm-hmm. And, and after I left um, Princeton House in Princeton, I went to Eatontown because I'm in Freehold. So that was the closest place to go to inpatient um, therapy for two weeks. Uh, and then when I got released from Eatontown, now I'm still currently in a six-week program for outpatient Monday, Wednesday, Friday. That's telehealth that I'm doing. But once the telehealth is over, this doesn't end, bro. This is like... This is like the AA meeting yeah. for the alcoholic. Like, I still am going to go to therapy. It doesn't have to be once a week. It could be twice a month or even once a month. But you have to maintain with the medication and the therapy in order for this to work. Yeah, yeah. When you're when you're going through something like this, um, you know, this kind of stuff can sneak up on you. Did you did you recognize or see any kind of warning signs, even even in the slightest bit, anything at all? There's no, there's nothing. nothing at all. For me, well, a year ago, I, I had my first panic attack, and I didn't know it was a panic attack at the time. I thought, I actually thought it was a stomach problem. And I went, I got, I got an endoscopy, and I got, I checked out, and I got an ultrasound, and they were like, so I guess uh, a year before I was about to retire, all this started to hit me that, you know, hey, this has been your identity for 25 years. You're going to have to have a new identity. Also, you're going to be moving, and you're going to have all the stresses of moving, and your kids home from college, and you know, you know how it is moving into a new house. You yeah. have to, you have to get the movers in. You have to, you know, do everything. You have to unpack, and before you get settled in, it's it's a process. But uh, my mother was going through some stuff. My brother was going through some stuff. So I'm the kind of person that always worry about everybody else, and I, I'm always the one that try to help people before I help myself. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I learned when I was in Princeton House was everybody out there thinks you're in here for them, but you're in here for you. Mm-hmm. you know, I'm in here for me, and that was something for the first time. I realized like, wow, you know what? I got to stop doing everything for everybody else and finally start to do something for myself. And that's the first time I ever did anything for myself. Really was getting my head right. Yeah. You know, I think this topic and, and, and first of all, I mean, what you shared with us, I mean, was some very uh, personal, you know, things. So thank you for sharing that with us because, you know, there's somebody out there that's going through the same stuff Absolutely. right now. That's why you know? I'm here. And I'm also writing a book. It's taboo, like to talk about our feelings, you know, so I, I'm, I'm hoping that the one way is, you know, through close friends at work, you know, family members, you know, I told my wife, like, look, you, you have access to all my doctors. Now, if, if I don't ever seem like I'm myself again, let my doctor know something, you know, me better than anybody, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but taking that first step is the hardest thing to do. Uh, and that's why I want everyone to have the resources in their phone, 
Uh, I'm going to speak at convention also and make sure everybody screenshots the picture with Dr. B's phone number and Kenny's phone number. And, you know, it's as simple as, hey, you know what? Recognize something's not right and make it a phone call. Um, and even if you're that guy right now that says, you know what, I can relate to his story. Because the more people I tell about my story, the more people are telling me, oh, man, I had, I'm had, i on Xanax and I'm on Zoloft and I've been having issues with anxiety and this and that. Everyone's going through it. So and they're just not talking about it. Yeah. You know, it's okay to not be okay. You know, mental illness is a chemical imbalance. It's not anyone's fault, you know, and, and I need to, this is very important. There's no one magic pill or magic dose that works for me and works for Bill Brower. Mm -hmm. So that's the one thing everyone has to understand, you know, uh, it takes time to tweak the medication to get it just right. And, you know, you have to understand that it's a process, you know, there's many different medications out there and many different doses. So, uh, you just have to be open and honest with your doctor about how you're feeling. And you may have to be patient until they get it right, but understand that with the right medication and, and therapy, you could, you could start feeling good again. You know, if you're having, I really didn't have any warning signs other than the year ago, the one panic attack. Mm -hmm. um, mine was all recent, like right now, this all just hit me out of nowhere. Um, but, but, you know, everyone has issues. We all have issues from our past, from our childhood, from the job, you know, uh, so everyone's going through this and, Mental health is the one thing that, that gets neglected. And, and that's the reason I came in today. And I'm also, like I said, I'm writing a book and I'm going to come to convention and I'm going to talk because it's our 100th anniversary and there'll be a lot of people at convention. Just like I told my story about the Bushio thing, I'm hoping that someone hears my voice today or hear, or reads my book or, or, go, or hears me at convention and says, you know what, uh, I'm going through this too and, and uh, I'm going to get help for it. That's, that's what I'm really hoping that'll come from. Can you give us some insight about how your experience was at Princeton House? Because I feel like, um, you know, immediately the, the initial image that pops in your head when you hear about inpatient care and that kind of stuff is, you know, the, the, the funny jacket and the padded room. Right. Like, right. you know what I mean? So right. uh, can you give us some insight about what your experience was like going through that treatment? Yeah. So it, it was, you know. The Princeton House in Florida is more like a hotel setting. The one in Princeton is a, it's a little older facility, but I had my own bed. I had my own shower, you know, like they say in, in the military, three hots and a cot, you know, they fed you all day and you're busy from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed. You're in groups all day. Yeah. You're seeing doctors, you're seeing nurses, you're seeing psychiatrists. It's not, like, it's not no. solitary confinement. No. You're around other people Absolutely. that are dealing with the same thing. It's yep. like a, yeah. Everyone in there. Well, everyone in there is for, in there for different reasons. Sure. Some are for, in there for addiction. Some are in there for mental health. Some are in there for PTSD, anxiety, depression. Everything falls under the umbrella of mental illness. You know what I mean? So uh, it, it's okay. Like I said, and it's, it's it, a lot of people have it. I mean, virtually everybody has some form of mental illness and, uh, and they all cope with it in different ways. But, yeah. but when I was in there, the staff was amazing. And, uh, you know, there was this doctor, Dr. Yanofsky in there. The guy was great. He's a big Russian guy. He had a real thick accent, like almost like Rocky's trainer from, from, uh, from the Rocky movies, yeah. you know, and anything I asked for, you know, I had knee replacement surgery, uh, three months ago. And I was like, doc, I don't know if you can get this, but I have this ice pack that I have at home and my wife can bring it in. He's like, done. Everything I asked for, he'd just say, done. I'm like, really? He's like, you know, doc, I need this. I need that. Done. You know, I need fingernail clippers. So basically, you know, uh, you're in there and it's, it's a place you have to understand. You're going in there to get better. So you're in there with all people. And I, you know, I made bonds that there were people, you know, military people there, first responders there, police, 
Uh, and then there were people from all, from all walks of life. But yeah, it's not, um, it's nothing to be like, you know, oh, I don't want to go there. It's, it wasn't, it wasn't a terrible experience at all. You, they take your cell phone away, uh, but there's, there's, there's phones in every hallway. Yeah. So literally I had a phone in the hallway outside of my room and my wife could have my number and call me whenever she needed to. I could call her whenever I needed to. Um, you know, if I wasn't in my room and the phone rang, somebody answered it, they would, you know, Hey, can I speak to Bobby, please? Everyone knew who I was and they would come and get me. So, um, yeah. And, and, and they're committed to, to, uh, not letting you go until you feel better. Yeah. And, And that's why I spent nine days in there and I needed it. And, uh, it was a good place. It's it's a Penn Medicine and, and Princeton uh, Princeton House. I can't say enough good things about yeah. it. They probably saved my life. So I, I think, just to clarify, I think the place in Florida is actually now called Florida House, FHE okay. Health. Okay. Um, but they're, they're, they're still in conjunction with each yep. other. They still work with each other. And, uh, you know, I mean, so so other people that are listening understand that, that those services are available to our immediate immediate families as well. Yep. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. if you you've got somebody in your immediate family that's going through the same kind of thing or needs some help or whatever, um, you know, those resources are available not only to us as members, but to our immediate family members. Right. And what everyone needs to understand also, if they're reluctant is it's covered by our insurance. Mm -hmm. Okay. hundred percent. And also on the job, we all have to understand, like some guys are worried about, Oh man, I can't go away for two weeks. If you go to your employer and say, I'm having a problem, they have to, allow you to go get help. The problem comes where people don't get help and then something happens to them and and then they come to their job. Okay. You don't, you gotta be, you gotta be proactive instead of reactive. If you notice there's a problem, you go to your employer and say, I need to go away. They can't touch you. Mm -hmm. Everyone needs to understand that. Uh, but if you, if you don't get any help, you're drinking and you get in a DWI and you kill somebody, the job can't do anything for you. You know, you have to get that help first. And they have to allow you to go and, and it's all paid for. So you really, if you're thinking about it, you know, uh, you know, I have no problem with, I don't know how somebody can get in touch with me, Bill. You let me know. Well, why don't you tell us that if somebody wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way to contact you via email? You can, I mean, I'm not saying you have to, you can give out your phone. I have no want. problem with giving out my cell um, for you know, a brother, firefighter, you know, I don't know if anyone else listens to this, yeah. police officers, yeah. dispatchers, paramedics, EMTs. Anybody has a question, they can call me at 908-963-1016. That's yeah. my cell number. Yeah. And just leave me a message because I won't pick up if I don't recognize the number, but sure. say, hey, I heard you on the podcast and I have a question and I'll, I'll always call you back. I mean, literally, I was. we have to understand, too, when I was in Princeton House, I was trying to help everybody. I was in fireman mode because that's all I knew. You know, was, There were people in there literally that were freezing that I gave, I gave the sweatshirt off my back and a girl had no shoes. I gave her my sandals. Like I learned that we can't save everybody and we can't help everybody. And that's something that's hard for me to, to understand. Uh, but that's something that everyone needs to know in our profession. We can't save everybody. We can't help everybody. All we can do is everything possible and rely on our training, but we're not going to be able to, you know, save every person. And that's hard for some people. And it was hard for me too, but that's something that I learned in there that to understand yeah i think awareness right now um awareness and action you know are, are the two biggest things and, and we we talked about it you know uh there's guys and gals out there that are really hurting really really hurting for whatever the reason may be uh and, and you'll never know it you'll walk into the firehouse or the, the the station or the dispatch room or 
the, the first aid squad or whatever, and and never know that your brother or sister next to you is going through some really dark times. Right. And and it's important for us to understand that, you know, it's okay, like you said, it's okay to, to not be okay. And the first step is is recognizing that yourself, right? If you don't recognize it, there's no way you're gonna be able to get help. Mm-hmm. You can recognize the fact that there's something off or there's something going on and you need help. That's step one. And step two is taking action. Yeah. You know, and and really, you know, that action can be taken. It doesn't have to be a giant leap first. Maybe you start out by talking to somebody. You know, if it's a, a guy or gal at work, you want to start venting to them, talking to them, getting some stuff off your chest. Maybe they've got something they can relate to with you. That could be the first step. And then you know, might go a little bit further and seek professional help and, and get get the help that you need. But it's important for our members and, and anyone in the first responder community to understand that recognizing and taking action are are the, the only way, the only path to get better. Yeah, you know? and, and we have excellent insurance, and it covers yeah. telehealth. You know, if you're the kind of person that doesn't want to go somewhere, you can, you know, all you have to do is call the number on the back of your card and say, I'm interested in mental health. And they will, you know, they'll say, okay, you know, Bob Falzerano, you live here in Brick. Here's, here's counselors in your area. They'll tell you based on where you live, where people are, and they'll put you in touch. And that's step one. All you have to do is make a phone call, Call the number on the back of your medical insurance card and tell them you're interested in, in talking to someone about mental health. And it's included in your uh, it's included in our insurance. So that's step one. And it's a simple step one, really. You know, um, keeping that stuff in doesn't help. You know, you have to let it out. Yeah. You know, it's almost like you're shaking up the, the, the bottle of soda and then you pop the top off. You know, it's going to explode. You really have to you have to let it out and you have to talk to someone. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, like I said, you were right, Bill. You hit the nail on the head. Like when I told people what happened to me, everyone's like, you got to be kidding me. They were, they were shocked. Nobody, I was shocked when I heard. Everybody was like, what the hell? You know, he seemed like this real laid back, easygoing, happy-go-lucky guy, always in a good mood, always busting chops, you know. Um, but like I told you, the doctor said, be aware of the funniest guy in the room, you know. You know Patty D. Well, you heard the name. You weren't on the job when he – he was the funniest guy that I ever met in the Union Fire Department, and he, and he ended up killing himself. Um, you know, those, that's how they drown their pain with humor. Some of the guys, you know, um, the, the real way, you know, you're going to be a company officer soon. Um, I was a union president. I had this resource on my phone because I literally sent people there that were having issues. Um, you know, so that's one way is looking at your coworker and, and seeing that something's not right. And this is the other way. The other way is by getting out messages and talking to people and saying, here, here's the resources. Maybe you can post them on the website. And let everybody here's Doctor B and here's Doc and Kenny's number. Once um, when the podcast is over, put the two numbers on there for Princeton, uh, Princeton Health, and you know that's another step. But we yeah. gave you the first step is you know call your insurance company and say you wanna you wanna do either telehealth or mental health, and they'll put you in touch with someone. And the second step is here you can you can use the resources through the FMBA, and we'll make sure we put those numbers on the website mm-hmm. later. Uh, for anybody that's having any issues, and you also have my number. I said I'll, anybody can reach out to me at any time, and uh, I'll always call you back. That's a promise. 
You want to tell us a little bit about your book or you want to keep that under wraps for right now? No, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it. I, I touched on most of it. You know, I'm going to uh, essentially just go into my childhood in Union, then my career as a firefighter. And then I'm going to talk about uh, what happened to me recently. Um, and essentially, the book is going to be a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. I want all the proceeds to go to Tunnel to Towers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a good friend of mine that, that I went to high school with that owns a bookstore in Union Center. Uh, I'm I'm a kind of guy that I like to support the mom and pops. You know, I hate the big conglomerates, the the Amazons and the Barnes and Nobles of the world. So I called my friend Joe, who owns this bookstore. I said, "Look, Joe, I said, I don't even know if you can profit from this or not. I'm saying I hope you can, but if not, you could point me in the right direction." So what he told me was that with the nonprofits, is 60% of the book proceeds would go to the charity, and 40% would go to him. He said, "Of the 40, I'm going to kick 20 back to your charity and only take 20%." That's the kind of guy he is. Mm-hmm. So. 80% will go to my charity, 20 will go to him. I'm like, this is awesome. The charity's making money. Joe's making money, which is exactly what I want to do. Um, so that's it. I mean, I need a, I need a publisher and I need an editor. Um, my problem is getting what's in my head on paper. Yeah. So I'm going to get, I'm going to dictate it because that's the easiest way for me is to talk and then, uh, and then, and dictate it that way. But, uh, yeah, if anybody knows a publisher or, or an editor or anything about dictation, that's, uh, that's where I'm at now, but I'd like to have the book ready for convention. I don't know if it will be or not, but even if it's not, I'll be able to speak at convention about what I went yeah. through. And hopefully, uh, whatever people we didn't reach in the podcast, we can reach there. Uh, I'm extremely passionate about making sure, you know, presidents, delegates, anyone sitting on an executive board has these phone numbers uh, to help our people, you yeah. know, as resources. Yeah. You know? That's well, it. Listen, thank you for, uh, for taking the time out of your day coming up here and, and, uh, you know, talking about this. Um, I hope someone listening can hear my story and, and actually does something about it, yeah. you know, and the best call I can get, it would be one that said, Hey man, I listened to your podcast and, and I called and, and I got the help I needed. Cause I was, I was right where you were and, and now I'm better. That's, you know, that would just make my day. Yeah. You know? so. Well, thanks Bob. I appreciate you coming yeah. in. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Come back. All right, everyone. Well, that wraps up another great episode from FMBA Nation. Thanks for listening to it. And if you don't already, make sure that you follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can listen to this podcast on any of the major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio. And if you have an Alexa-enabled device and enabled the TuneIn skill, You can say, Alexa, play FMBA Nation podcast on TuneIn Radio. And if you're interested in being a sponsor of the podcast or would like to be featured on the FMBA Nation podcast where you can talk about your products and or services that you have to offer, be sure to email us at nation at njfmba.org. And until next time, be safe.